Hey, before we jump into the podcast, just want to give a quick reminder, if you're new here to the Holistic Nootropics podcast, to please just take a quick second and subscribe to the podcast. It takes literally a second to do. Just hit the subscribe button right there in your podcast player. Also, if you want to help us out, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. Now, if you're more of a visual person, you like to actually watch the podcast, you can actually do that over on the Holistic Nootropics YouTube page. Just go to youtube.com, search Holistic Nootropics, You'll see our page pop up. Subscribe to that. Hit the little bell icon so you can get notified every single time new videos drop because we don't just do podcasts over there. We do product reviews. We do all kinds of nootropic and biohacking and holistic health topical videos. So go on over, check us out on the Holistic Nootropics YouTube page. And for all things nootropics, nutrition, and biohacking related, go on over to holisticnootropics.com. Okay, let's jump into the podcast. You're listening to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, your home for holistic, evidence-based cognitive enhancement strategies. And now your host, Eric Levi. Hey, what is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, where we talk about using nootropics, nutrition, and biohacking to help you hack the power of your brain. My name's Eric. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner. And today on the podcast, I am joined by Mario Tomich. Mario is a health coach and fitness YouTuber with over 180,000 subscribers and 20 million plus views. He's personally helped thousands of people achieve their health, athletic and performance and physique goals. Mario, welcome to the Holistic Nootropics YouTube channel Thank and podcast. Thank you we're <laughs> looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, I've been interviewing some uh, fitness people lately, and now I'm just like, you know what? I'm going sleeveless on this bad boy. I got to represent here. You know, I can't just show off my big brain. I got to show off the big guns. You know what I mean? So uh, maybe you'll give me some tips to get these big guns even bigger. But before we do that, uh, I'd love to know how did you get started in this fitness world and uh, especially this YouTube fitness world? Yeah, my background is a little bit different. And it's a little bit odd compared to most people that start in fitness, at least from my understanding of most fitness YouTubers are generally people in the field, have always been into sports. They've always been on top of their um, and athletics and things uh, of that nature. I grew up as an early kid, scrawny, played video games when all the other people were chasing girls and uh, playing sports. So I was at my computer trying to nerd out, trying to play Wolfenstein and some of those early games and generally consoles and things like that. So I was then from there, went into computer science, uh, did a degree actually, a master's degree in computer science. So studied as an engineer. And then I eventually got into fitness for personal reasons because I needed to revamp my life because I got very addicted to gaming at some point. I was a World of Warcraft player and got really overweight. So it didn't really feel like I had my life under control. My health was slipping really quickly. So I had this opportunity when I graduated, I got that master's degree and I was going back to my town now after you know, studying for five years. And it was this fresh start perspective on my mind. And okay, let's try to reorganize and leverage this opportunity of being this new place to, to revamp and reorganize my life. So I decided to go into fitness to um, get some change in my life because I really didn't know which area to tackle. I actually didn't get a job immediately. It was that 2008, 2009 crisis as well at the same time. So I was like, okay, fitness is something I can control what I eat, what I do with my body. Let's, let's try to get some leverage here and uh, just really fell in love with it. I fell in love with it for one part because it really allowed me to level up myself compared to leveling up some characters in a video game. I realized there's so many parallels between 
my personality, which is an addictive personality, working at health habits and trying to hack this and optimize this and tweak it and, and learn more about it. The same thing I used to do in video games. That's literally just all the things you do. You, you get hooked on it. You, you improve and continuously seek uh, the next challenge and fitness is exactly like that. And, um, it's just much more healthier for you. I mean, obviously video games, I still play from time to time, just not at a level that before just not for priority. And I can see a lot of positives in it. So for me, health and fitness, that's how it all really started. And of course, eventually, you know, as, as with a lot of people, you know, your, your hobbies and things that you really fall in love with, you get so much into it that, your general profession that you're into, you're not excited as much about it. And I still like some software engineering on the side. I do some of the stuff coding with my company as well, but fitness has definitely become a main thing for a long time now. And uh, back in 2015, I started a YouTube channel that became quite popular. I think one reason why it became so popular is because of that data-driven engineering, science, logical approach to it, where a lot of the people out there on the platform at the time were very kind of rara, motivational, yelling at you, you know, that type of stuff. And I was just presenting a very logical argument for why these things have to be a part of your life, how to strategically organize yourself and, and use a more systems approach to design your lifestyle to really be on top of your game. Because I still do see fitness as a, more like a vehicle toward achieving overall life success in general and balance. Because if you have your body and your mind on top 10 out of 10, I mean, everything else becomes a lot easier. And if your health is out of control, everything else starts suffering. So I'm kind of thinking about those areas of you got social, you got, you got work and you got fitness, and you really want to advance in all of those areas as much as you can to be the best you can be. And for me, health and fitness was that thing that I took care of first and then really helped me in everything else. So that's sort of general philosophy behind um, my transformation and sort of the mission that these days I'm a big proponent of. And with clients, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and really to find that balance to, to maximize gains and all across the, all those three areas. I really like what you said there that, you know, how you differentiated your YouTube channel from others. And I kind of take the same approach with, you know, with, with uh, holistic nootropics in that, you know, when it comes to things like performance, um, and I've been to performance seminars. I've been to, you know, several Tony Robbins events. I've gone through these programs, whatever. Um, and at the end of the day, having a system, having data is really the only way to do this because you can only rah-rah yourself so much until you just get burnt out of the rah-rah, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, it is mind over matter because only you can get yourself out of bed and, and start doing things throughout the day and take that first step that eventually becomes a mile, that eventually becomes five miles, that eventually becomes a marathon or whatever analogy you want to use in the weight room. But at the same time, you know, like for instance, holistic nootropics, um, you know, people want better performance. You said you work with a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, there's only so much like, Hey, I can do this. Keep going. Got to do it. You can do before you say, okay, well, what does the science say about how I can increase my brain's ability to function better? What, what are this, what are the compounds I can incorporate into my diet that can help me remember better? And I'm sure with you, a lot of it is, you know, what are the movements that hit the obliques the best, you know, what are the, what's the, uh, you know, the, the range of motion I need to really optimize, uh, shoulder strength and these sorts of things. Yeah, you're correct. I think the beauty of science is the fact that we can control for things and then we can get some more definitive answers. And the overall goal is getting closer to the truth because without science, you're essentially guessing. 
you could just say bloodletting that they did for centuries worked until they actually did a control experiment and saw that more people made it alive and healthy without bloodletting than than the ones that did the bloodletting. And then finally doctors realized, oh, wow, this thing that we were doing for hundreds of years, actually we're killing more people and helping. So there's a lot of things like that, that now scientifically we can test for. If you have a control group, if you have an experiment group interventions, and I'm a really big fan of trying to approach this from a perspective of what's measurable, what we can achieve, what we can know, because the goal of all of us is to get closer to the truth of what we can do to optimize ourselves. And from my perspective, one of the things that with, with this whole you know, motivation slash discipline problem is that motivation comes and goes, obviously not very reliable. You can only leverage it when it comes, but it's not something that you can consistently generate at a high enough level to make big lasting change. You can do temporary stuff for sure. I mean, anybody could temporarily, you're super motivated today. You don't feel like work is work or this workout is that hard because you're high levels of motivation, but it almost gives you an illusion because once that motivation goes away, you then are faced with a harsh reality of how difficult that activity actually is to continue doing. And then you have the willpower. Yeah, sure. You can bridge the gaps. Sometimes when motivation is low, you apply discipline, AKA willpower to get yourself to actually do that, but you're still not leveraging the most powerful thing that human are designed for, which is sort of this automatic thought, because we have system one, system two thinking, and by automatic thought, I mean creating habits and leveraging the habit system, because the habit system allows your brain to be very optimal by automating activities that then don't require as much discipline and as much motivation. Because if you can shift from that paradigm of trying to brute force this thing to how do I create this as a habit in my life, you'll find yourself quickly creating that as an automated behavior, which is your new default, and then doing the bad behavior, quote unquote, bad behavior will actually be much harder. And I'm a really big fan of this, uh, this whole idea. And we can go back to, I mean, Daniel Kahneman's work is, is exceptional for this. He's a Nobel Prize laureate. He's an exceptional I mean, writer. And I follow a lot of his work and I mean, he can go into psychology much deeper. But this fascination of that most of our lives is ran by habits. I mean, day-to-day behavior is pretty much the same day-to-day. Most of our behavior in a single day is, is pretty much ran unconscious automatic stuff. So we have a lot of leverage in a sense if we can reprogram that side of ourselves. Because if you have 5%, 10% of your behavior that's conscious, you don't really have much control. I mean, most of your days are still going to be run on autopilot. So if you can leverage that 5 to 10% to reprogram, the other 90, 95%, you got something because I believe that high performance is a habit. That's my opinion. That's what I've seen work. And that's what I scientifically, when I look at all the literature, I do think it's a, it's a habit. It's not a one-time behavior. It's not something that you do as a 30 day challenge. It's not something I'm going to pump out a bunch of content in two weeks or whatever, you know, your discipline is, or go to the gym hard for you know, 60 days. I really think it's a habit. And that consistency over time combined with competence increases over time, you get mastery. And when you get mastery, you need less and less discipline about this. Because one cool thing about discipline is that it's also domain specific. So you could have a lot of discipline in one specific domain. So a lot of self-control, let's say when it comes to your work and you're really powering through things and it's all working out well for you. But when it comes to training and let's say exercise, you don't behave the same. So we also see now in psychology, there's a lot of domain specific things happening. So you might be motivated for a specific activity, not motivated for another one. 
so it's a much more complex thing. And this is where individualization comes into play and really seeing what your unique challenges are to being a high performer and what's preventing you, what's getting in the way, and then leveraging what we know currently, of course, are the best strategies for that. And then ultimately you find your own formula for really being consistent, which is the hardest skill to master. If you can master consistency, I mean, no matter what workout program someone gives, you can have the perfect workout in the world, but if you're going there sporadically or once or twice a month, you're not going to get anywhere. That's just the truth. The same with the diet, of course. And I think that's, that's really where the beauty of exercise comes in. Cause you're right. Being consistent is tough for probably 98% of the people who go to the gym. This is why gyms are able to pay their rent every month because they function off of most people not going. But I think those, those people that do go to the gym all the time, I think they carry that consistency to other parts of their lives. You know, like what I'm thinking, what you're, when I hear you say what you just said is when you work out, the reward is the endorphins. The reward is the pump. The reward is looking in the mirror and, and, you know, maybe you don't, but I always feel like after you work out, you just look a little bit better in the mirror, right? You look a little more swole. You look a little more cut. Maybe that's not your standard thing, but I think when the, when people go to the gym and they get a little bit of juice behind them, I think that's enough to keep going because you start to get those good feelings going Going, Oh, this is working. Um, it's the rest of life that I think people fail to lock down that prevents them from being able to go back to the gym. So whether it's relationship problems, work problems, problems, just life problems, or maybe just really bad habits that slow you down. Um, because to me, the workout is the, the end of the workout is the reward. There's certainly something to the, to this, uh, the feeling after a workout and that you get, and every time you're you know feeling bad about a workout, you go out there and kind of get yourself to do it. And then you feel good about it. Anybody who has ever trained has experienced that. You just kind of power through it. You go through the warm up. And suddenly you continue in that motion because you have that little bit of momentum. It's one of the things why I always talk with my clients about whenever there's an issue of procrastination or just getting started, because getting started is usually this 95% of the issue. If you can negotiate with yourself to just do the first rep or the first warm up set, you're very likely to just continue and do the whole workout. And mind the mind will play tricks on you. I know even for myself, after doing this for 10 years, you still have those days when you've just knocked out 10 hours of work, but tons of meetings and stuff. And then, you know, you're feeling a little bit tired and the mind's like, ah, let's just do it tomorrow. You know, let's just, let's just skip it today. You know, let's do a fresh start on Monday or whatever. And then you just tell yourself, well, let me just go there and do, a, just do the first exercise, right? Let's just make it a 15 minute easy warm up. At least I get to walk to the gym and walk back. But then you get there and you just warm up and suddenly you finish the whole workout and you feel super happy about it. So one of the things that really makes it hard for us humans is because we're so state dependent. So we often fail to realize that the current state of mind you're in is so easy to change. And then suddenly your decision about a certain other thing can change as well. Um, I think, I mean, we often overestimate our capacity to make decisions. So you got to be really good at some of these tricks and really getting yourself uh, to take action, which will automatically generate some of the motivation and more momentum perspective, and then you're going to get there and do it. Uh, and of course, as, as you mentioned, and part of your, you know, what, what you explained there is naturally we are not wired for some sort of delayed gratification, right? So that's our problem because we, we love things that have immediate gratification. So we can immediately see the results of our efforts. Um, and of course, 
some people aren't even looking for it. If you go do a workout and the average person, they think of it as a chore. So they come in with a very bad mindset to begin with. So they don't see that they're getting the benefit of the pump. They don't actually feel better. And yes, for a lot of people that that is the experience they have. And then that kind of confirms their initial bias that this whole thing is a chore. It's not worth it. It sucks. And then of course, it becomes really hard to form habits if you're not enjoying it because part of habit formation is very emotional. And it's very difficult to form a habit on, on something that's that's just terrible for you immediately in the moment that you just feel bad about. And sort of finding ways to enjoy the process rather than, you know, as people say in, in business, you know, find something you're passionate about and then do that. Well, why don't you actually learn how to become passionate <laughs> and enjoy the process of something and then you will have a much easier time. So there's a there's a lot of arguments here for exercise as a part of, it's both the effect you know, the, the cause of a lot of the you know, positives, but it, it can also be really something that I would say initially is, is a keystone habit for other things to layer on top. Because I know personally, when you do your plan and, and you go hit the hard workout, you're more likely, you're now invested and you're more likely to follow through on a better diet. You're more likely to do some of the other habits as well, because you don't want to ruin it. And it just shifts. It, it's an easy way to shift yourself into a healthier lifestyle. So exercise is a really good form of, of um, way to get those habits rolling. One of my personal favorites is also taking a walk. I'm really big fan of walking, getting that you know, eight, 10,000 steps a day. That's, that's my you know, preferred activity as well. Uh, other one would be like a flow state activity, which you can do in cycling or running or other sports really puts you in a good state of mind and great for the brain. I'm a really big fan of movement. I mean, when you deprive a human from movement, you will really start feeling some very nasty effects. Burnouts are very likely. Um, you, you get your best, at least for me personally, I get my best creative ideas either going back from the gym on my walk. My Apple notes are constantly open. I'm writing stuff down or during the workout itself. It is ridiculous how many things and opportunities I've gotten because of that creativity that, I, that I've been able to leverage during the workout. So yeah, I would I mean highly recommend someone who's not exercising right now to, to give it a go. Yeah. And, and this is why I love to work out in the morning because I feel like I'm the most motivated in the morning. Lately, I've, I kind of transitioned my workout to the early afternoon. Um, but I find for me, the earlier I work out, the, the more I'm able to complete the workout, um, or at least initiate the workout. Um, I'm curious if you see with people, um, a difference between early workouts, late workouts, you know, kind of what the split is as far as people successfully starting and completing a workout, depending on the time of the day. Yeah, I would say depending on the lifestyle and the structure of your schedule, for a lot of people is getting it done early in the day is the only opportunity they have to be consistent. So typically, I would recommend then putting the workout at that time. So waking up and just getting it done. It does for a lot of other people end up being in the early afternoon, like what you described now. For me personally, I love early afternoon because what I normally do is when I wake up, I'll knock out about a three, four hour work block. So I'll get my creative juices slow in the morning. I'll get a lot of work done that is really hard work for the day. Then I'll do a workout as a way to almost reset sort of mentally moving away from that type of exhaustion into physically working and letting my mind rest and being more present in the moment, leveraging that, and to get back into another work block after my workout session. So I use the workout there almost as a little in-between 
that I'm taking a break from more like linear thinking on a problem and getting more into my body and getting more into the present moment. And then I'm going to hit the problems again with business and working on other things. So that's what I found works best for me. You know, some people like to just do it after their work days entirely. I mean, the best time is the one you can stick with, honestly. Same with the diet. The best diet is the one you can stick with. So it's really about actually first and foremost, optimizing for consistency. And then later you can, if you have all the options and all the time slots, then you can find which ones um, will, will work best for you. I still don't think that there is any preference in terms of actual results. I would just avoid training right before bedtime, for example, which would definitely then affect your sleep negatively and wouldn't be the best idea. But as long as you're you know, within reason, I, I think that's all fine. But yeah, consistency is the number one thing and kind of merging it with your work schedule. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I, what you just said right there too, I, I, I follow that a lot as well, which is the morning time. I mean, I love the morning workout because I feel, I think I just have a cortisol addiction, <laughs> you know, like I just love that, that cortisol burst. I love working out fasted. I just love like the, like no food in me, just, you know, burning off those ketones and then just, you know, uh, I'm feeling fresh. And then it kind of like that kind of carries me through the day, but what I really love to do is to, like you said, get work done. And then the workout is almost like an alchemizing activity as well, where it's like when you work your brain, when you do brain intense work for a couple hours, okay, you're going to hit a point where you can't do it anymore. You know, you just naturally need to take a break. The workout almost allows me to like take my mind completely off it. And then whatever questions, whatever thoughts I had brewing from the work session, almost like sleep, they kind of get solved during that workout. It's like, it, it literally is like the movement of the body is moving the brain. You get the BDNF, you know, pop in, you get all that, you know, growth, uh, nerve growth factor happening. And then sometimes I'll just have answers and picking it back up in the afternoon, um, you know, is a, is a way to kind of solve the problems from the morning. Absolutely. Yeah, you're correct. This is one of my personal experience as well. I've got a lot of ideas, both for content creation, uh, solving other particular business problems, literally in that workout in the afternoon. That's been my personal experience. One of the reasons why I don't like to do it right in the morning is because my workouts are crazy intense. So it ends up really taking a toll on me. So I need mm -hmm. to, uh, then I take away from my work performance. Sometimes I do get chance to do it in the morning, which is fine when I have to do it, but because the workouts are really heavy and I feel pretty beat up after it. So I try to do it a little bit later once I get some of the important work done. Uh, so yeah, it's, there's a sweet spot there as well. I think it depends on your level of uh, you know experience and, and just knowing yourself at the end of the day. I mean, th this is measured experimentation, right? You've done it in the morning, you've done it in the afternoon, you've done it in the evening, and you can see which one works best for you. So you can scientifically run this experiment for yourself and see, just run it for 30 days, log the, the, the data and see exactly what it tells you to do. You don't have to actually listen to anybody. You just find out literally what works for you. And that's what I'm a really big fan of individualization on as many factors as I can. So when you say your workouts are intense, um, because I kind of go back and forth with this myself, you know, where, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much energy to exert in a workout. Like I understand, of course, I'm going to give my all to the workout, but am I doing like a hit where it's just constant, you know, high intensity or am I, uh, or I should ask, are you, you know, are you doing like a hit workout or are you doing like endurance or is it kind of like 
intermittent strength training you're building up? Are you going as hard as you can every set? Are you building up into a hardest set? Like, what is your workout split? And typically how long do you work out for or, or recommend, you know, not a beginner, but maybe like somebody who goes to the gym often, they're just looking to really get better results out of their workout, go about their workout. Yeah. So I'm an example of someone who's done this for a long time. So at, at a certain level, when you get to, let's say you built up enough strength and, and muscle mass in order to keep progressing when you're closer to your genetic limit, you really have to do a, a crazy amount of work volume in the gym. So you're talking about you know, 15 plus sets per body part per week. So it ends up being uh, longer workouts, it ends up being heavy weights. Um, even the weights that you would do for 12 reps are much heavier than most people do even for sets of, you know, three, four. So that then takes a toll. I mean, it really is about min maxing at this point in my journey. Now, if you're someone who has less than five years of training experience and you don't want to take it to the level where I took it, you can easily get away with, you know, training between 10, 12 sets per body part per week. And those workouts with 45 minutes, you just come in 45 minutes to an hour, you do classic uh, sort of hypertrophy training with some strength training and you're good to go. And I'm a big fan of hypertrophy slash strength training. That That's my bread and butter. I mean, I don't do these uh, hit cardio sessions or these long endurance sessions. My workouts are very, very intense to a point where my goal is to actually build more muscle and strength. So if I start adding more stuff on top of this, which would be hit cardio, whatever endurance, I can't serve two masters. I'm starting to get into conflicts now. There's just not enough recovery capacity for me to keep up. And I still have goals of adding more muscle. I'm still having goals of getting stronger. And so I have to be very careful with how much I do. And due to the nature of my lifestyle in general, which is stressful. I mean, people often think, no, he's running you know, a fitness coaching business. So he's just, that's all he does. He's an athlete. No, 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 no. I'm an entrepreneur, which is a very different thing. So I'm working 10, 12 hours a day and I'm getting into those workouts and I get an hour to finish the workout. So I got to really press hard in those workouts when I have a chance. Now, sometimes I will do an hour and a half if I have the opportunity, if there's no, not a lot of other tasks in that specific day, but sometimes I'm just in and out in 45 minutes. And I have to bring up the intensity, meaning that I have to train closer to failure. I have to try to cram in as many sets, but still being mindful of my rest, because if I don't rest enough, I'll injure myself. I mean, if you, if you press 120 pound dumbbells, you can't just go there and rest for a minute and do it again. You're pretty beat up after that first set. You got to really start thinking, okay, am I going to hurt myself now? Or I got to take the weight down or I got to approach from a different perspective. So I would say an example of the average client of mine would be a more suitable example for most people, which is three to four sessions per week between 45 minutes to an hour, hitting uh, all the major body parts, really having a balanced routine, upper, lower body, uh, making sure you're hitting sort of the, the weaknesses, individualizing the program for them. And then you are hitting a certain amount of sweet spot. So you're not overtraining, you're not undertraining. Because I do have to be mindful with clients so it doesn't affect their work. So I can't go in there and tell them, take every step to failure, because then they're going to either hurt themselves because they don't have as much experience or they're just going to burn out because they're, they're not able to recover from it or it's going to start affecting their work. So yes, there's a lot of optimization that you have to find your sweet spot so you're not overdoing it. And over time, as you get more serious about it or potentially more passionate about it, you start doing more and more because you have to do more and more. At some point, you have to get heavier. It has to get more intense. That's the only way to progress because the muscle growth is in itself, a response to a, to a need. And if there's no need and that strong stimulus there, it's not going to happen. If you're, you know, let's say benching 135, 
you aren't going to have a big chest. I mean, that's just the honest truth. I mean, you could, you can maybe do that for a hundred reps at some point, but you know, maybe you can get some growth out of it, but there has to be a progressive overload component to the whole training perspective, right? So as long as you keep, you want to keep improving, you're looking for some way to increase the effective, um, amount of volume that you're doing, which has to then go up in intensity at some point, because you're not going to be training, you know, 60 rep sets or, you know, with pink dumbbells, it's just not going to work. Right. And that in itself poses differences in training over time. Most people that I work with aren't really looking to be bodybuilders. So it doesn't end up being that situation, but still like you will have to learn how to lift heavier, at least be able to do, you know, uh, the compound lifts, with a pretty decent amount of proficiency. So technique improvements and all that other stuff. So yeah, did the workouts get pretty intense? And so with those more, uh, like heavier lifts, uh, do you have, um, like a minimum number of reps that you're going for in something like that? Like maybe you say, Hey, uh, I'm strength training. Um, I want to be able to do like a heavy weight, but I don't want to, I don't want a weight that's too heavy that I can't do it less than three or four or five times. Do you have anything like that, that you, that you, uh, that you do? Yeah. Uh, my personal training is mostly between six and 20 reps. So I rarely ever go below six reps. I don't want to be a powerlifter. I don't have any ambitious to specify for strength and very rarely I would even train at six reps. So most of my work is, I would say in that eight to 15 range. And then it really depends on the exercise itself that I'm performing. Obviously you're not going to do bicep curls for sets of six um, or lateral raises. You're going to blow out your shoulder. Uh, but let's say you're doing deadlifts or you're doing squats or you're doing some of the other compound lifts like hip thrusts or let's say presses, bench presses, dumbbell presses. Yeah. Those are pretty suitable for that range of let's say six to 10 uh, chin-ups, pull-ups, those types of movements like dips. Uh, those movements are really good for that range. And then of course you've got a plethora of isolation movements that you can use to really work on some fine details. And at this point, again, after 10 years of training, there are areas that I have to prioritize more than others because I see how my body is responding to training. I'm not genetically gifted across the board, same as everybody else. We have our weaknesses. We have our strong points for my arms, whatever I do, they grow. But then for my chest, I got to really hit it hard in order to see some growth. The same thing happens across the board. For most people, they'll notice that there's certain areas that grow faster. Some grow slower. For some, you need more. For some, you need less. And in my hamstrings, I do six, seven sets. So hamstrings a week, and I'm pretty much good to go. But then for my quads, I'm hitting like 18, 20 sets per week and, and to see growth. So there's a pretty big difference sometimes where where you got to really tailor it to yourself. And uh, that's the beauty of training. I mean, everybody kind of has their own unique formula. Are there any exercises or movements that you see people do in the gym um, that you think are overrated that you think people are doing these? Cause I've, I've heard some, some exercises um, you know, I've heard some people kind of poo poo, for instance, um, burpees, right? I've, I've, I've heard, people, you know, like you go to a CrossFit gym, you'll do a thousand burpees, but then I've heard, you know, some more season, like, um, you know, personal trainers and some of these more fitness, YouTube, uh, influencers say burpees are a complete waste of time. So I'm curious if you, if you have, and it doesn't have to be anything where you're like, you know, Hey, everyone's individual, just in your opinion, are there any movements you see people do that you think is just like, you don't understand. You just kind of think that it's an overrated work, uh, exercise. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I see a lot of mistakes in the gyms. I, I mm -hmm. see a lot of bros doing, uh, you know, six, seven different bicep variations that literally hit the same muscle from the same angle. And they're just 
why why are you doing that? You know, it makes no sense. Like they're just wasting their time. Uh, but going back to your question, I mean, it really depends on the goal. So for example, if my goal is to build muscle, burpees are a waste of time. I mean, what, what why am I doing burpees? Maybe as a warm up, maybe as a, you know after the workout to help me maybe burn some calories, but they're a waste of time for a specific goal. Now, if your goal is to get a sweat and burn some calories, yeah, sure, burpees are a great tool. Each exercise in itself is a, is a tool with a goal in mind to do something. And the, the cool thing about at least training for hypertrophy and for muscle growth is that there's really no, no exercises that you can just say that they're the holy grail and you have to do them. So you see a lot of people go to the gym and they're, they swear by the squats, the deadlift, and the bench. It's literally all about that strongest five by five and they just go for it. Look, if you have problems with your back or let's say you have long femurs, let's say you're broken out an injury from an accident sometimes, you don't need to do any of those movements to build up your legs, to build up your back, to build up your glutes and to build up your chest. None of those, zero. And that's the beauty about training in general. When you understand it, you can use any exercise to get you to that goal because at the end of the day, you're looking to stimulate that muscle through the range of motion that's the best for you and get the job done and progress your load over time. So you can easily build your quads with leg pressing, leg extensions. You never have to squat. If you don't want to, if you're hurt, if you're in pain, you had some problems, totally cool, right? And that's the good thing about it. And that's why I'm always, when people say, oh, I hate the Smith machine squat or I hate the machine curl or whatever, that movement, then there's nothing wrong with that movement. Any movement like that can work. Obviously, people have biases. They go through powerlifting and you can see how they program for their clients to all be powerlifters. I try to really be very open against that bias as much as I can because the people I work with are not looking to be powerlifters or weightlifters. For example, like clean and jerks and snatches and, and overhead squats that are often prescribed as a part of certain programs in CrossFit order. I mean, there's no, I don't see why would someone in general population want to do those exercises because if they're high-risk exercises, for example, if you're a beginner, if you don't have the, the skill to do it, you're just going to have an injury in, in your hand. And, and then people are pushing themselves with very little oversight that's something I'm not a really big fan of. But as far as the gym, the beauty of the gym is that it's so interesting because you can get to the same goal in, in, in a lot of different ways. And that makes it fun. You can really mix things up from time to time if you want to and still enjoy the you know, different stimulants. It's literally like being architecting your own physique. And that's the amazing part about it. So I hope that answers your question. I mean, I, I honestly, I mean, there's exercise that I see people do with very bad form all the time. Like, you know, they're, they're you know, not doing full range of motion or cheating or curling in the squat rack and doing half reps on the squats and things all the time. That's literally every visit to the gym you see. But I'm trying to almost be blind to a lot of that stuff these days just because, it, I mean, it's just the way it is. Like you can't, I try to make videos help as many people as possible and, and hopefully, um, you know, more people become aware of good form and all of that and don't get hurt. But yeah, you, you see a lot of stuff in the gym. I mean, honestly, like you see all kinds of nonsense. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think you definitely answered the question. I think, uh, I, I ask because, um, cause I did CrossFit for a year and I, I did it and I, I really loved it. Cause again, like I'm a, I'm a cortisol junkie, you know, and that's, that's what CrossFit is. CrossFit is just an hour of just smoking your body as hard as possible. And I think that has its place, but I'll never forget like going to the CrossFit gym and then introducing the idea of snatches to me. And I could barely get in a squat. I mean, I couldn't get in a squat. Like I couldn't get in a proper squat. Like it's taken me two years just to be able to like get my butt down 
below my kneecaps and just kind of hang there. No way, you know, just getting in a, like a regular squat position. Um, and then they just take, you know, Joe Schmo off the street and they say, Hey, do the most complex Olympic lift, uh, that probably has injured more people than any other exercise. Just start doing that along with 50 other people. And we'll have somebody kind of walk around and say, good job, bad job, but not really coach you through all of the mechanics of the lift. And to this day, I just don't even know what muscle group a snatch builds. Like I'm, I see big guys doing it and, you know, strong women doing it, but I couldn't tell you like physiologically what a snatch does, what a power clean does, um, or what a burpee does. That that's literally the issue there is getting someone off the street and then you progress, you overload them really quickly. And then if they have let's say someone with a competitive nature, or let's say like yourself, you go there and you see a guy in front of you, he's doing uh, overhead squats with 135. And you feel like, wow, you know, I'm doing this very lightweight or I'm just doing the bar, but let me just put on a little bit more weight and a little bit more, a little bit more. And you're fatigued. Maybe you just spend the whole day working. You come there, there's nobody looking over your form. You do that a couple of times and suddenly there's some aches and pains. There's some issues. And the problem with this is, I mean, bodybuilding or strength training is not injurious in itself, like powerlifting or all these control. But when you get into weightlifting and you got a velocity, throwing weights around with bad form, of course you have a problem. But that's, again, remedied if you have good oversight in person, making sure if you want to really master those lifts. I don't see the purpose of it for most people because you can get there in other ways that are a bit safer and more gentler in your body and your joints. If you're someone with injuries in the past, the same thing happens with running. I mean, the, the perfect example is you got someone who's 30, 40 pounds overweight. They go to someone and they tell them, okay, just start running. They start running five Ks and they just destroy their knees. And by the time they lose their weight, they just destroy their knees. There's this culture, again, pushing some of these activities that yes, since the gratification perspective, yeah, you did a hard workout today, but are you actually playing the smart game? I'm not against hard work. I'm very biased against hard work, but I'm also looking to work smarter. I mean, let's create some leverage here. Can we do this a little bit better? I mean, are you going to do this for the rest of your life? Because I guarantee if you blow out your knees and your shoulders, you're going to be crippled for a long time and you're going to suffer for decades. So there's really, you know, that perspective of it where you got to be a bit smarter about it. And I think you can really make this sort of optimizing it for very, very long-term success is the right way to go about it, right? Not thinking about it as a challenge, not thinking about it as, I see it as a lifelong pursuit, as a sort of like a quote-unquote infinite game. And it's just constantly going. The, all the goals that I have in the journey are just milestones, but the one thing doesn't change is that I'm constantly doing it. So that consistency element is always there. And that's really what I'm a big fan of. I plan on being the, the fittest I can be at any age until I'm no longer here on this planet. That's the goal, right? So there's no stop. There's no end time there. I'm not competing against anybody. I'm just literally just doing it. And that's the perspective I try to instill this infinite mindset into all the clients I work with, because it is, and you got a body, you got to take care of it. I mean, it's, it's yours. And so then, you know, I'm sure as a, you know, as, as somebody who coaches people that 
you probably get someone like me who's just, they just want to get after it. And you almost kind of got to like pull them back a little bit. Um, you know, how, how do you approach that? How do you approach, uh, like, like a rest day, you know, and, and maybe even like the mental hurdle of thinking like, Oh my God, I'm not doing anything. I'm getting fatter. I'm getting weaker. Um, you know, what, what are your views on rest days? And I, and I asked specifically because I think I saw you put out a video recently where you were talking about actually still doing some like light exercises on rest day. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can maybe talk a little bit about the importance or, or how you approach rest days. You correctly diagnosed a specific type of client that I run into often. It's a pretty large percentage. So on one hand, you have people that need the accountability to actually get themselves moving and to set, you know, push them and to get do more. But then you also have an, another kind of cohort of people that need the accountability not to kill themselves because they're just pushing and pushing and pushing and they're prone to overtraining and overdoing it and burning out. Um, either extreme is not a good idea. So yes, there's definitely that subset and I can identify myself in there because I would never take a break unless I get sick or someone forces me to. And that's a problem. And I had to work on this many years. You mentioned rest days. Uh, the big thing about rest days is that they're depending on obviously like how intense your workouts are and you will, you'll see your fatigue levels, managing your fatigue is essential. Uh, rest days are not a step back. They're essentially setting you up for future success. So it, it's a setup for you to be better. And in general, if you're constantly grinding, so let's say you're training seven days a week, you never get yourself any rest. You're going to run into more issues than just muscular fatigue. You're going to run into overuse issues, your joint and tendons, which don't recover as fast. Uh, you're now starting to run into problems with Overexhaustion, which will start bleeding into other things like your creativity and your uh, and your balance in general. Like you're mentally going to be just exhausted. You're going to run into the issues where you're just going to start hating your work. And overall burnout is a real thing. It does happen. And I think there's not a lot of talk about smart work and leverage. And there's a, a ton of talk about hard work. And I love working hard. I mean, I work in my business. I do. 10, 12 hours a day. I don't see it as work though. Like maybe other people on the outside see it as work. I'm just you know, researching, constantly learning, helping out clients, creating content. I just love what I do. Uh, but yes, I mean, if you ask my girlfriend or if you ask my you know, parents or my, they're going to say I'm crazy because I stay up, you know, at 1 a.m. I'm just researching something on PubMed and they're like, what the hell are you doing? But I don't see that as work. So my attitude toward it is different, but I can still be prone to burnout because of that, because I did actually come from that perspective of I'm wasting my time here. What am I doing on this day? If I'm not actually training or if I'm not pushing something in my business, if I'm not working on something new, there's this massive amount of FOMO that's generated by that. So I had to learn how to relax and play and take a step back mentally, because I've noticed that if I don't do that, I'm actually missing out on really big opportunities because I'm not generating creative solutions for problems anymore. I'm getting to a point of diminishing returns because you're, let's say, 100 hours a week of work. I've never met, I work with eight, nine figure entrepreneurs. I mean, I work with people or actors who do crazy things in life and they, they hang out, Elon Musk. And the people that are really on top of their game, none of them, zero ever work 100 hours a week that just doesn't long-term. I mean, they have a push sometimes, maybe they got to do an 80 hour, sure, whatever. None of them keep grinding out in and out a hundred hours a week. It just, that type of mentality will not get you very far because you're going to hit a wall very soon because you got to work on leverage. 
So there's a way to not add more hours, but making sure your hours make more output than the input you're putting in. And this is where I'm a really big fan of taking a break, in a sense, getting out there in the nature, resetting, replenishing, getting the stress down, because that's where you're going to fuel your creativity. And now you're starting to get some ideas and some problem solving mechanisms kicking in that normally don't happen if you're in constant linear thought. And that's what, if you're in hustle mode, you're in linear thought. A leads to B, that leads to C, to D, to E. You're never really letting your mind wander and think of creative ways to solve a problem. So from a productivity perspective, it makes a lot of sense to have fun activities, rest days. I know they're hard. I also had to learn how to do them and, it, and it's a pain in the butt, but it pays off. It, it really does. Even one day a week, even you know just the weekends, you will really set yourself up for making the next five days extremely productive. You're going to get stuff done that takes six hours. You're going to get it done in two hours. And you're going to wonder what happened. But you were fresh. You were creative. You were excited about the business. You were excited about fitness. You're excited about things. And you're not excited if you're constantly hustling and grinding. It just becomes like this weird pride thing. But the output is not there, right? It just does, doesn't add up. Yeah. And that's why I especially love, uh, the aura ring or any kind of like tracker that tracks uh, heart rate variability and heart rate, because, you know, at the beginning of the day, the aura ring tells me, Hey, here's your readiness for the day. And you know, Hey, I, I get that some people can walk into this and go, Oh, that thing. It's stupid. Like, what does it know about you? It doesn't know me. Like I get that. I have those days with it too, but I find that it's really kind of accurate. Um, quantifying like, it'll tell them like, I'll know how I feel. And then I'll look at the score and I'll go, yeah, that's basically how I feel. I feel like, you know, I feel like an 85 ready, or I feel like a, like a 62 ready. Like I didn't sleep well last night. And it, a lot of it, those low scores, those low HRV days come on the tail end of just a hard grind. So that's when I'll know, like if I've been overtraining, if I haven't been getting the right sleep, if, you know, I'll, if I have those days, those weekends where I'm just kind of, you know, maybe the diet kind of goes to crap a little bit or whatever it is. Um, and then saying, okay, this is a day that I probably shouldn't work out. I should probably take a step back. Um, and it goes back to the whole data-driven decision-making where, you you know, I think overall, how do I feel is really the, the number one way. But at the end of the day, you know, how, like, what is my body? What is my parasympathetic? What's my sympathetic? What is my nervous system telling me how I feel today? And then kind of going off that. And I think that takes a lot of intuition that comes down to, you know, how mindful of my own body am I? You're correct. And tracking your workouts is, for example, a great way of seeing how much fatigue you built up. If you start, let's say, running into a wall and you start hitting the um, you know, reps you did before, but now you suddenly start getting down and you're seeing the reps decline, you're seeing the weight decline, you're seeing everything hurts. I can tell, let's say, if I'm about to hit a wall with fatigue or sickness or something like that, that doesn't happen very often because I got really good at it, but I can almost like tell like three, four days beforehand, just by my workout performance. Mm -hmm. I can tell you because if I'm starting to decline in the gym, it's probably a sign there's something else happening. And then I can validate that the next day and see if it's true. Then I know roughly what's going on. The same with my sleep. Uh, I'm a really you know huge sleep addict in the sense that I promote lots of sleep. I sleep about nine hours a day. So that's my commitment to myself. I don't go, I mean, maybe eight an hour and a half hours. Sometimes that we just wake up naturally and you just don't need an alarm. You just shut it off. But I try to really sleep nine hours from all the intense mental and physical work to keep up with things. You do need nine hours. And then yes, if you have a 
couple of days in a row at, at like six hours or seven hours, it's a huge difference. I mean, I, I honestly don't know how people can operate on you know, five and a half, six hours consistently without catching up or without implementing strategic naps or without optimizing it some other way. Uh, there's obviously some genetic exceptions here. Some people can operate. I've, I've seen some really interesting um, exceptions over the years as, as a coach, which doesn't necessarily align with the scientific literature, but still, I mean, there's some people that they find naturally they're okay at seven. I personally found that for majority, when they started getting into really good sleeping habits, it just, it's a complete game changer for everything. And then you're avoiding the situation, for example, the one you're, you're describing. And uh, it's absolutely true being that, understanding yourself is such an important factor for, to naturally build muscle, to naturally, I mean, management of stress is such an important factor. Same for diet adherence, for diet consistency. If you're running into stress, I mean, that's one of the easiest ways to fall off. You're going to start getting cravings. Your hunger and satiety signals are a little bit off. You're overall not going to be able to follow through because the calorie deficit from the diet also in itself creates stress. So if you're stressed out on this side, then you're stressed out on that side, you're pushing strong in the work, you're pushing strong in the gym, eventually it's going to break. And sort of that, that's one of the reasons why managing fatigue and auto-regulating yourself and your habits, it's such a big factor. I'm a big fan of flexible habits. So if I notice that I'm hitting a wall, I'll go for a lighter week of training. That happens. No, no problem. I'll just do go in there and do a couple of sets and I go home. Not a big deal. I'll just do take a walk instead. I'm a big fan of flexible habits and trying to be what I would describe as an adaptive perfectionist in a sense, because I have a very perfectionist nature and I have to be adapted to the circumstances. And I would consider the goal is to do the best I can possibly do within the context of the situation. So if I'm fatigued, the best I can do is three sets in the gym and I go home. And that's what you got to be okay with eventually. If you're a maladaptive perfectionist, then you're always going to beat yourself up and have this standard for yourself that, you know, you kind of push and push and push. And then eventually you're going to run into trouble into a different coping mechanisms and, and, and eventually burning out. So yeah, there's a lot about stress management that I'm a big fan of. Um, it's a huge component of high performance. I mean, there's just no way around it. Yeah, I uh, 100% agree. So when it comes to getting shredded, right? Because uh, I, I think at the end of the day, this is probably why most people get into uh, get into fitness or, or burn themselves out in the gym because it's just that ideal body, right? Um, wh what tips or, or, or what approach do you see works best for somebody who wants to get, say, below 15 or 10% body fat? Yeah, I would say the range of 10 to 15% is very appealing. I think that's sort of the range where it's going to be relatively sustainable for most people to be at. Um, and then you could pick a, let's say a baseline of 12%. For example, what I personally do, I pick a baseline of 12% body fat. This is roughly where I hover around. If I'm throughout the year, I may climb up to 15 at some point, a little bit more, try to build some muscle. And then I lean down to 10, maybe sometimes to eight temporarily. And then I go back up to my 12 range where I feel great because there are negative consequences of going below 10, deeply below 10. I was just speaking to one of my clients today. He's 50 years old. He's at 6% body fat naturally. So he got a real contest basically ready. And we were talking about, you know, the, the level of how your tank of energy for the day actually just starts shrinking at some point and you're starting to get a lot more affected by, you know, stress and everything else. So for someone who's naturally doing this, again, you'd, you'd probably be best between that 10 and 15% and then visit the range. If you do want to get completely diced and shredded, I mean, you can sure visit the range of eight to 10 or and you just get a photo shoot done and climb up. 
the key here is really understanding, first off, your starting point, uh, making sure that you get into a calorie deficit, of course, that's the primary driver of fat loss, creating calorie deficits, sufficient protein intake, making sure that you have a good system for, for your nutrition. So it's not about a lot of micromanagement. You want to try to make it as easy and as simple for you as possible. If it feels hard, you're not doing it right. You should try to make it as simple as possible to get started. And then eventually it will get hard naturally just because you're getting really lean. And then you're going to have to micromanage it. So if it's hard at 25%, man, you're going to have a hard time getting down to that 12%. So eventually you get into your rhythm and then you'll obviously have to manage your hunger. This is where making sure you're getting larger volumes of food, controlling the caloric density is very important. As we mentioned, sleep is a big factor of this and why most people fail. And on top of that, resistance training has to be in place in order to protect the lean mass you have. And if you're a beginner, more like an intermediate as well, you can build some muscle while you're losing body fat, which is a great thing. I'm a big proponent of that. And just making sure you have very realistic goals when it comes to this, very realistic expectations. Because if you're going into this expecting you're going to be dropping two, three pounds a week, you're going to be in trouble. You're not going to sustain that. So my rule of thumb is losing anywhere between half a percent to 1% of your body weight per week, no more than 1%. Even that is very ambitious. When you get to that 15%, you want to get down to 10, you're more likely going to be losing less than that because the uh, higher rate of uh, fat loss, I mean, weight loss you have, the chance of muscle loss and also adherence to the diet becomes more difficult because you have to be in a deeper deficit. And then long-term, of course, where people screw it up is they think of it as that, okay, I'm going to get to 10%. And I'm just going to go back to what I was doing before. And then they just regain all the weight, right? So there's this exit strategy that you have to have in place. So you don't underestimate how difficult it's going to be transitioning out of that calorie deficit back to maintenance to hold that for a while and slowly rebuild up. What trips people up is emotional decision-making. It's kind of similar to the stock market, right? You get one fluctuation, suddenly it's a massive, you know, freak sellout. Everybody's getting into all their, their positions or they're just you know, being beginners. Uh, the way you want to be thinking about it is, how can I make objective decisions? So I'm a really big fan of tracking your whole approach, every you know, data metric or right to your food, weight, all the measurements. We do a lot of stuff with our clients that measures progress over time. And then you can make data-driven decisions when you don't look at the single daily weigh-in, but you actually look at several weeks of what's actually going on. What's the trend? Maybe you had an exception in a specific day where you retain a little bit more water or not. And then you can make sure you don't making decisions on that single day, but you're making a decision on a larger enough data poll so you can actually be correct and more data oriented than emotional. Because emotions will get you in the way, especially uh, you know, either complacency, you know, you get lean enough and tell yourself, oh, I'm good enough. Good is the enemy of great. And then you start running into troubles and you're going to run into other issues where it's going to get hard and you forget your why and it's all sorts of things. So having your mindset clear as well is a huge factor of getting lean. I would say half the battle is psychological. The other half is sort of the programming aspects of it and everything else. That's why I'm so big in psychology. I think that's the the missing link for most people is they kind of know what to do because naturally we all know we need to eat less and move more to lose body fat, but it's really about how to do it consistently. That's the problem. Like how do you get yourself to do things you know you should be doing, but you're not? And why are you doing things you know are bad for you? And that's sort of the thing that really can trip people up. And so I'm really a big fan of, of that psychological um, aspect of it, understanding sort of black and white thinking, you have a little bit of a slip up and then you just scratch the whole weekend. You start, you know, one bag turns into two bags, three bags. I'm going to start fresh on Monday. 
all those things that are sort of cognitive distortions that are getting in the way, like overgeneralizing, you make one slip up, oh, this whole thing doesn't work. We're really fighting a lot of biases. We're fighting a lot of cognitive distortions along the way, which uh, if we can conquer those, if you can win that mental battle, the physical battle almost is inevitable. I mean, you're just going to get there, right? But a good process. So then are you, are you implementing a lot of, um, you know, in, in this time where you're saying, okay, now I'm going to get shredded. You've, you've done your bulking or you've, you, you know, you've been maintaining this anywhere between 18 to 25% or 22% body fat or so you're not fat, but you're just kind of like you're bulked. Right. And then you say, okay, I want to get down to 10% or 12% body fat calorie deficit. You said, are you implementing heavy lifting still, or is it more reps, light lifting? Are you throwing in cardio? I would imagine sauna or excess sweating would probably help. Like, like what are some of the, uh, you know, techniques that are going into getting into that shred? Yeah. So what, what is going to retain the muscle is the same thing that's going to build the muscle, right? So your goal is to always do resistance training with the goal to build muscle, even if you can't, you're still aiming to build muscle. So resistance training is your pillar when it comes to activity. That's if you're really looking to optimize this thing and get to a physique that at 10% body fat actually has some muscle, you have to prioritize resistance training. It can't be hit cardio. It can't be cycling. It can't be running. It has to be resistance training as a part of the routine. I'm not a really big fan of implementing a, a ton of cardio in there. I'm a big fan of walking for a lot of people, they may sustain, let's say one or two cardio sessions a week for like 20, 30 minutes. And that's fine. But beyond that, I'm a really big fan of walking. And as I mentioned that eight to 10,000 steps a day, that's, I found with walking personally, yeah, I made, I'm able to eat a lot more, still lose body fat, which is great. You have way more energy, much more enjoyable. I'm recovering faster between the workouts. I'm better sleeping at night. So I'm getting way more benefits from that. I'm getting stress reduction. I'm getting audiobooks and podcasts while I'm actually walking, which is pretty awesome. So I'm getting brain gains and I'm getting the physical gains. So overall, that's my favorite activity to pair with resistance training hard. And so if you get these two things done, yeah, you can spice some cardio in toward the end, for example, if you need to get a, in a bigger deficit, sure. But it's not really the main driver of what you're trying to do here because the deficit is primarily created by the nutrition interventions, not by training. The training is designed with a specific purpose here is to retain and build muscle. And the walking is there to, is to help you with creating some of the deficit, but it's also for the recovery and all the other benefits, getting outside, especially really important for stress management and everything else. And then you're getting the diet dialed in because without dialing in the diet, I mean, forget it. You're not going to get shredded. You can train your butt off and you can see a lot of people do it, but it's so easy to eat back all those calories. So it's really the dietary intervention with hitting the right caloric intake, the macronutrients that are suitable for you, and then making sure that the, the right you know, foods that you're hitting are also filling and they're also healthy. And the diet is not just optimized for losing weight, but it's optimized for body composition, for overall, like that you're really eating a, a very healthy diet. But then you also recognize all the challenges that are going to come, that are going to try to take you away from your path to getting shredded. So making sure you have processes for things like social events, vacations, holidays, uh, friends coming over, going out and partying, like all those specific situations that are happening in your life, you identify them and you create a process for them. So I look at this as an engineer, as a, as a programmer in a sense. So if this happens, I'm going to do this. If this happens, I'm going to do this. I mean, if this happens, I'm going to do that. So you have processes in place. It's 
so simple then to essentially execute because you have a good plan in place and you're not just getting in there and trying to wing it. Because if you try to wing a weekend, you're usually going to end up in trouble because you have food drive. You don't understand in this moment how you're going to feel in that moment when all the temptations are there. So you have to prepare yourself ahead of time. So a lot of this is really managing uh, week by week, stay dialed in and just dialing it in to begin with is not as hard as staying dialed in, right? So staying dialed in is really the key. It's not necessarily just to set it up once and all you have to make all the adjustments over time as well and really being on top of it. So it's, it's an interesting process. You learn a lot about yourself. If you've never been down to 10% body fat, if you're someone now looking at getting there, you know, listening to this and you're 18, 20% or even at 15, I would highly recommend it. It's such a great process to discover a lot about yourself and your internal uh, sort of battles that you're going to be fighting as well as sort of the external things about your body you're going to learn about where the fat is coming from because obviously it's not linear sometimes you see people getting lean in their legs before their stomach and then sometimes it's stomach and they still have a lot of fat in their legs you start realizing a lot of things about your own body and ultimately you're going to see how much muscle you really have and what you work for because someone who is a 20 percent body fat it's kind of hard to see how much real muscle you have uh, when you lean down every like ounce of muscle you have really will show. And, and it's, a, it's a great accomplishment. I think really just getting there and just visiting that range for a little bit of time is just in itself is amazing. Are you implementing any fasting protocols in that time? Like intermittent fasting or anything like that? I have a lot of clients that are fans of um, the 16, eight intermittent fasting. Some of them find uh, maybe a bit longer eating windows to be uh, better for them. Some of them actually come in with a long history of very extended fast, which I'm not a really big fan of for when it comes to body composition and getting shredded and retaining all the muscle mass and building muscle, especially not the best idea. So I've done 16, eight for a long time. I mean, look, at the end of the day, it's an organizational tool. There, there are no specific special benefits of fasting that you're going to get uh, as, as much as I would love there are. I mean, if there were, I would literally prescribe fasting to every single person that I've ever met. <laughs> but unfortunately, as far as fat loss is concerned, uh, you don't really get any other magical benefit from it. It can help you uh, get better food control. In some cases, uh, people like the organization when they have an eating window and then outside of the eating window, they just know food is off the table. So they don't really have any cravings or hunger. It can help you get out of the old paradigm, which is where I used to be, you know, six, seven meals a day, which I definitely don't think is sustainable for most people. So now you're getting to eat two, three times per day or two to four times per day. So it, it just kind of opens up the, the, the realm of flexibility to you, which I think is important to have because sometimes you just get two meals in and you're happy. And sometimes it's three and then you can stick with that. So I, I don't think really that the fasting itself does any special benefit outside of organization and maybe personal preference. Uh, it's really does come down to the overall diet, right? It's not necessarily the timing uh, of the diet itself. And what are your, uh, you know, kind of diet specifications when you're working with somebody who wants to, who wants to shred up? Yeah. So th this is, this is completely individualized, right? Some people like higher fat uh, intakes and lower carbohydrate intakes. Some people like higher carbohydrate intakes. Some are, you know, higher protein, some are vegetarian, vegan, and they, they want to eat a little bit less protein. So it really has to be individualized. There, there's no shredding program as much as I would love that there was, and there's people selling quote unquote shredding programs. There is no universal shredding program. That's the, that's the hard truth that people need to hear. And there's also no program that you can just set and forget because everything you do, your body is also adapting over time. 
So your natural amount of energy expanded at 200 pounds is not the same as 180. Your preferences for food may change. You, you have traveled there. You have a lot of different things that you personally like to eat that you found that if you deprive yourself of that, now you're starting to get into extreme restriction. So the way I look at the diet itself, it's a blend of flexibility and structure that you have to strike the ideal ratio for the individual. So some people prefer more structure. They're like robots. And I have plenty of clients like that. They just execute and just tell me what to do. And they just execute. But there's, on the other hand, you have also people like more flexibility, which means that they like to experiment more foods. They like to have more varied diet and and that's okay as long as each one of those is optimized and as long as there's both in a, in a ratio that's not extreme to either end. I'm a personal, just my own diet, big fan of structure, but I also have some flexibility, right? So I don't want to just chicken, broccoli, rice every day. That doesn't work, right? But having that structure in place, I know these are my you know, timings of my meals and then I'm going to go eat out. We're going to go have a date night, have this food, go to this restaurant, let's try this out. So I have that almost like an 80-20 type of mindset with it. So I have enough flexibility so I can enjoy that. But when I come back to my to the work, let's get the structure, right? So th this is how I found also for most people, they have their own ideal ratio. And uh, you got to meet people where they're at. Uh, trying to revamp things or trying to push people into keto or trying to push people into, not a really big fan of, uh, of those types of approaches. In general, honestly, I have not seen uh, these type of approaches work long-term for the majority of people I work with, um, sort of, you know, strict keto or some kind of crazy fasting approach, like alternate day fasting. Maybe in the short term, you know, motivation is high, discipline is high. I mean, I could fast for, you know, eight weeks. I could just get myself to do anything, but I'm really thinking about what can you do for the rest of your life, right? What fits all the goals you have in your life, not just, you know, whatever you want to do and, and, you know, status symbol <laughs> as a part of like, you know, how hard can you work? Because, you know, we can do all kinds of crazy things. Sure. And really the last thing I want to ask you is supplementation. Um, where do you stand on supplementation? Are you, uh, are you a fan of specific supplements? If so, what are the supplements, you know, that, that you're a big fan of to accomplish, you know, let's say the goal of just, it doesn't have to be shredding, but just kind of general fitness, general health, um, you know, outside of like the standard vitamin C and that sort of thing. Like, are there any, you know, any kind of fringe supplements that you like or nootropics or, or biohacking, um, you know, nutrients that you, that you like that are, that maybe are a little outside of, uh, of the mainstream. Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. So, Vitamin D is the is the most important, in my opinion, supplement for most people because we don't sure. get outside enough and that's something you, you have to diagnose, see where you're at and take it. And I know it's sort of semi-mainstream. I think still uh, it's a, one of the largest deficiencies in, in the US and across the world with knowledge workers and people spending a lot of time indoors. Uh, I had my family entirely tested when, when COVID came around because I had a suspicion that this might be related to, uh, to part in making things worse if you're vitamin D deficient. And I found my dad was at the bottom of the bottom of the, wow. of the range. So he was at the bottom of the bottom, meaning that his vitamin D concentration was based practically, you know, zero, close to zero. It's crazy. And then he supplemented a lot and he barely got it into the normal range. And the similar thing happened to my mom, similar thing to happen to all the relatives that they explained this to. And uh, I think this is a really a, a widespread issue that people aren't really talking about. And it's uh, very unfortunate because it's such an easy fix, such an easy kind of 
low-hanging fruit to get. Uh, creatine monohydrate is excellent as well. I mean, I, that's one thing that not just for, you know, people think gym performance, but it, it is actually really good for mental performance. I mean, anything that relies on ATP, which is pretty much everything in your body, uh, the creatine monohydrate is excellent for. I would recommend, um, you know, trying that out on yourself and see how you respond because there's definitely good responders, low responders, and non-responders. Even the non-responders, I've seen that they're getting some of the cognitive benefits, not necessarily the, the exercise benefits, but they can still get some of the cognitive benefits, which I think is important. Um, on, on top of that, I mean, um, I, I would say you, you want to do regular blood work to see if there's something's missing, and then you, you want to supplement that specifically. I'm not a big fan of sort of these shotgun approaches where people take a bunch of multivitamins or whatever, and then they end up uh, with an even worse imbalance than they started with. You might have some ridiculous imbalance right now that you need to fix. And that's not going to happen if you're not, uh, you know, testing yourself properly. Um, aside from that, um, potentially adding some krill oil or some form of omega threes. I think there, there's definitely a decent amount of convincing data. If you're looking to get something in there, if you're not eating a fish very regularly, that's a um, very fatty fish, maybe have some benefits on top of that. Whey protein is certainly a recommendation I would put out there because people are not getting enough protein. That's, that's a big problem. Um, and uh, it doesn't have to be whey. It can be pea protein if you, do, if you don't you know, go for dairy or whatever. Uh, but yeah, some protein supplement can help you hit your goals. Uh, aside from that, I mean, if you start getting into caffeine, uh, that's obviously very popular and that, that works. Um, and for sure, I personally don't take it because I'm too sensitive to it and I find myself, uh, not be able to sleep well. So I'm trying to minimize all caffeine intake from all sources. And I found that to actually work really well for my energy levels. Uh, aside from this, um, might not be a supplement, but definitely something that I recommend from time to time is bone broth. Mm. Um, having um, a higher intake, you know, certain foods like that, you know, fermented foods and bone broth, really good for digestive health. Uh, I mean, you can go for basic you know, kettle and fire if you don't want to bother with you know, cooking stuff like bone broth. But it is definitely making a difference when it comes to digestive health. And uh, people do notice, especially in a diet, if you're starting to, you know, if your fiber intake isn't in high sometimes, and if you're eating a higher protein intake, it can really make a difference there. And um, aside from that, I don't have any special magical ones. Uh, I mean, I looked at the data, you know, there, there's some scarce data on some things, but it's a lot of speculation, not a lot of control. And I would say it falls more into the realm of, uh, you know, personal responsibility, self-experimentation, if it works for you. I personally don't take a lot of stuff. I just don't um, find it necessary. Um, very happy with my focus levels. Never had any issues with that. No, no distraction problems, sleeping well, exercising, living a healthy lifestyle. If there is something that comes out that I want to try out, if there's enough convincing data, I would definitely give it a go, but I just don't see it at this point in time. Um, of course, and maybe someone else, an expert in the field can see, but I, I just don't see it at the moment. Yeah. I, I think what you, what you hit on are all great, um, nutrients, especially the vitamin D thing, because, you know, we take for granted, like the, you know, Hey, I feel okay, but you know, vitamin D really in my experience and with people I work with as well, and just kind of across the board, as far as general health goes, you know, you, you can make almost a direct correlation between your, you know, your daily health, the way you feel and your vitamin D level, um, 
case in point, I heard somebody on a podcast say that um, the seasonal flu, for instance, that's not a seasonal flu. It's a seasonal vitamin D deficiency. And, you know, because it hits at the time of the year, especially up north and being someone who used to live up north, um, man, when the sun is not around, uh, it can really mess with your mental health. And of course, that can mess with your physical health. And of course, everyone's always getting sick. And we all know that person who's always got at the very least the sniffles or they're blowing their nose or they're, you know, they're, they're coughing up a storm. Um, And you probably could test their vitamin D levels and that would be absolutely shot. And I will say it's also very important if you are doing a vitamin D, like vitamin D3 supplement to also pair in some K2 because that helps the absorption of it. And um, I think that's a very crucial step that a lot of people miss when supplementing with vitamin D. Absolutely. Yeah. So you don't get that calcium ending up in the wrong tissue for sure. Yeah. Getting some K I think is important. It's also a very common deficiency. I think most people are not getting enough uh, vitamin K in their diet. I think this is kind of getting to the problem and you're getting some, a lot lot of zinc deficiency. You're getting a bunch of, you know, issues. People have magnesium problems and having all kinds of problems. I think people often look for Know, very special getting the edge type of things while neglecting some of these very fundamental things that we already know with very, very convincing data that is actually super important for your health and optimal function. So once you get these things done, then look for the edge because you're going to find that that edge, whatever you're looking for, will work way better when you fix your D levels, when you fix all the other things, when you fix your diet, when you fix your sleep, when you fix your training routine. Like no amount of, you know, stuff that that is you know we're looking at now the five percent but you're neglecting the 95 percent and you can get the five percent complete dialed in but it's not going to make that much of a difference if you're not getting the big building blocks of your routine down so i'm a really big fan of that approach and i love sort of uh, thinking about it from a fundamentals you know first principles perspective that's the most i mean what we know so far you know, people dig through and they find one ridiculous small study on one particular little supplement somewhere and they just latch onto it. And, but then they don't go to the gym. Dude, we have like hundreds of thousands, you know, thousands of case studies and tens of thousands of research studies showing that this one thing will add decades to your life, improve your life quality, do all these things and they don't do it. But then they latch onto one rat study somewhere from the middle of nowhere, uncontrolled. And they know that, that they take that stuff. Um, and honestly, like it just, to me, when you go back to the first principle thinking, what we already know works and mastering how to do that first, I think that's where a lot of optimization can be made. And then of course you can spice in anything you want, but when you have a healthy body, healthy mind and all the good habits in place, you might even just say, "Ah, screw it. You know, I'm just good. And I think that's, um, that's a place where I think a lot of people need to kind of revisit, you know, their priorities and how they're approaching this whole health thing. I think, yeah, I think you nailed it. I think that's a that's a good place to end because that's such a great like uh, th- that's such a great bow on top of the present cherry on top of the Sunday. Um, you know, I, I, like that's basically what you know, what I try to bring to the table as well. You know, it seems like that's probably where most of your success is, which is stop focusing on these, you know, 5% or these 1% things like these, you know, kind of 
compounds or these, you know, trendy diets or whatever that everyone's doing, focus on the 99% that's going to set your body up for real long-term health success. And then really the rest of it's easy. You know, when, when you lock down a good whole food, you know, sustainable diet, when you, when you lock in good movement habits, it just permeates through your entire body, through your brain. And then, yeah, then jump into the biohacking stuff, jump into the, you know, trying to get that 10% body fat, you know, jump into all that stuff. But I'd say most people struggle, especially here in America with just getting to that, you know, to, to that other part, which is like the most most important part. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I, I think there's definitely some things that are overrated yeah. and you're spot on with the fundamentals. Everything works better when you have the fundamentals down. Every single thing you do on top of that will, will start working way better for you. Absolutely. Well, Marco, this has been, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Mario, this has been a great uh, chat. I've really enjoyed. I've definitely learned a lot from uh, from chatting with you here. You know, I, I definitely have a few tweaks I might make in the gym next time I go in. Uh, might not push it so hard uh, uh, on, uh, on these weekdays, maybe take a couple extra rest days. But uh, if someone's listening and they're really interested in what you're doing, where is the best place for somebody to go find you online if they want to work with you? Where would you send uh, the Holistic Nootropics listeners? The best place is just to check out my YouTube channel. I put out a lot of content there, which if you sort of are into getting fit, uh, reaching a low body fat percentage, you're looking to build muscle, looking to really learn how to build healthy habits and sort of psychology behind it. I think YouTube is the best place. Uh, you can check out my website as well, tomic.com. I got some stuff on there as well, some free training, some client results and things like that. But YouTube is really a place where you're going to learn a ton. So I'd highly recommend just checking that out. Cool. And I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes and, uh, you know, everywhere we post this, uh, there will be a link straight to your YouTube channel and your website. So Mario, thank you so much for joining me today. Listener and viewer, thank you so much for watching this. If you enjoyed what you watched, be sure to check out Mario's content, subscribe to the Holistic Nootropics YouTube channel, and be sure for more info on all this and all the show notes to this podcast, check out holisticnootropics.com. Until next time, peace. Thanks for listening. For more brain-boosting info, in-depth articles, and show notes, check out holisticnootropics.com.